Hey gang, this week's episode is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Yes, unlimited video learning with the world's greatest professors, including the brand new course, Fundamentals of Photography. Check it out at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash goodseats. You'll get a free month for a limited time of all the great coursework at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash goodseats for your free month. Check it out. Here's our show. I've met so many wonderful, unforgettable people, players, coaches, general managers, members of the front office, fans, uh, broadcast partners over the years. Uh, it's difficult to pull out one that stands out above the others, but I can do it. It's the big redhead, Bill Walton. He was a finals MVP in 1977 when I first ran into him as he led the Portland Trail Blazers to an NBA title over the Philadelphia 76ers. The following year, he was named the league's most valuable player. Bill was simply the best player in basketball. In the summer of 1979, our second season coming up in San Diego, I kept hearing from San Diego Clipper coach Gene Shu, the team had a very real shot at signing Walton as a free agent. The thought was positively intoxicating. Bill grew up in San Diego where legendary UCLA coach John Wood discovered him as a promising young hoop talent while at Helix High School in La Mesa. Yeah, John Wooden knew what he was seeing. Bringing the seven-foot center back home would put the Clippers on the map. The team had drawn less than 8,000 fans a night in their first season in San Diego. Free agency was very different in those days. Commissioner Larry O'Brien had the absolute right to determine compensation for the team that lost a player to a rival in free agency. Coach Hugh believed that he'd likely lose one of his two very capable centers, Swen Nader or Kevin Coonert, and possibly high-scoring six-man uh, Freeman Williams, who'd gone to school at Portland State. But certainly no more than that. Well, the Clippers made Walton the biggest free agent signing in NBA history and made the Big Redhead the league's first million-dollar-a-year player in seizing him off the Trailblazer roster. O'Brien's compensation was stunning. The Clippers lost two key starters, the second and third best players in power forward Kermit Washington and guard and former All-Star MVP Randy Smith, along with Coonert. Wow. Still, the Clippers had Walton. Airplane towed banners over the beaches exclaiming Clippers signed Walton. An extraordinary news conference was held at the San Diego Sports Arena. It marked the first time I ever saw Walton in a suit and tie. Looked good said all the right things about being thrilled to be back home and he was healthy and ready to lead the Clippers to an NBA title. I was sitting with Bill in the afterglow of the celebration at the sports arena. He said, sorry, I gotta leave. I said, what's up? I'm going to the hospital to have surgery on my ankle. That might be the first time I ever said, oh me, oh my. Walt would play only 14 games for the Clippers that year and that was 14 more than he'd play the next two years. To this day, Bill blames himself for the failure of the NBA in his beloved home city. It's unnecessarily harsh assessment, but it does reflect Bill Walton's lasting regret. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Oh me, oh my. How are you, friends? It's Tim Hanlon, and I welcome you to the proceedings that we like to call Good Seats Still Available, our curious little podcast, our little exploration uh, each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. Indeed, 
That was the uh, the dulcet tones of Mr. Ralph Lawler, the uh, newly inducted and Kurt Gowdy Media Award winner uh, at the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame uh, for his uh, uh, years of being the voice of the now Los Angeles Clippers. And uh, that's the focus of our conversation uh, this week with our guest, Mick Minas. Uh, you heard there perhaps uh, one of the most uh, interesting uh, parts of the uh, uh, very uh, curious story of of the Clippers franchise, which it currently, of course, is in Los Angeles. And, and we think, uh, given uh, Steve Ballmer's ownership and the the, the discussion around a, a new stadium and in Englewood and uh, the drama around that, it seems to be that's where uh, the loyalties lie is still to keep this franchise in L.A. But, you know, you fans in L.A. of a certain age may not even remember that the team you know, for a good eight years or so was based in San Diego and they were known as the San Diego Clippers. And, and in that little discussion there uh, with, uh, was with Mr. Lawler, you, you get a sense of perhaps a little bit of the uh, snake bit nature uh, of this franchise, which is going to be sort of the focus of our conversation uh, with uh, McManus coming up in just a few moments. Uh, are, is this a franchise that's been cursed? Uh, it's a very curious and perhaps uh, one of the most a checkered histories, I guess, of any franchise uh, in the NBA. And uh, we're going to kind of circle around perhaps some of the reasons as to why uh, the Clippers have been such a, uh, uh, I, I don't know, it, it, it's, it's an amazing story around, uh, you know, seemingly uh, making efforts to sort of write the franchise and all of a sudden then they're shooting, shooting themselves in the foot. Uh, some of it's just bad luck. And frankly, some of it's uh, just you know, bad management. I mean, the the uh, Donald Sterling escapade uh, that we've recently experienced in the last couple of years. But as you heard in that clip, you know, some of it was kind of uh, almost predestined, I guess, when uh, the uh, Clippers decided to sort of roll the dice and go for the big one. That is Mr. Bill Walton, obviously a, a legendary f- uh, figure uh, in NBA history for sure. But uh, back in the day, in the late 70s, the Clippers were basically willing to bet the franchise, uh, literally and figuratively, on Big Bill. And uh, as you sort of heard uh, discussed there, let's put it this way, it, it didn't go well. And uh, there were a number of reasons as to why uh, Bill has uh, been pretty straightforward and frankly, even a bit uh, maybe overly harsh uh, about uh, his uh, attempt uh, to kind of sort of bring the Clippers franchise to uh postseason and championship glory and it just didn't turn out that way and the foot and the injuries and the, all that kind of stuff uh, certainly conspired but it was by no means uh the uh, the last or the only uh, misfortune to befall the clippers of san diego uh, version uh in the 70s and early 80s and of course as they've sort of lumbered along in their los angeles lives in the old sports arena and uh being frankly the second or if you really think about it, the third in line tenant at the current Staples Center. There's a lot of drama, of course. Uh, you know, Donald Sterling and and uh, all his uh, shenanigans and and arguably one of the most, um, I don't know, uh, curious owners. Let's put it that way. Maybe I'm being charitable. But we get into all of that sort of Clippers history. We even, even do a little backstopping with uh, the origination of this franchise, which, of course, was as in the, in the city of Buffalo, New York, as the Buffalo Rays we've talked about uh, in a previous episode. Look up the... Uh, that episode with Tim Wendell that we did about six months ago, and you can sort of get the entire sort of uh, elongated history of this franchise. But we're going to focus today kind of on the uh, incarnation of this franchise as they uh, became and went on as the Clippers, uh, the San Diego version 
mostly, but we'll also get into the early years uh, as uh, as the Los Angeles Clippers. And and you're going to find out, as as most current Clippers fans know, uh, and I'm sure Steve Ballmer recognized it when he bought the team from Mr. Sterling uh, in that sort of dramatic fashion a couple of years back. Uh, this is a team that has uh, been luckless for the vast majority of its uh, of its lifetime. Uh, it's a fascinating topic. Uh, it's uh, we're going to sort of domicile a lot of it around the sort of the San Diego version, the eight years down there. And uh, it's just every turn, every corner, just every opportunity you think the franchise is going to turn it around. Just uh, it goes awry and then some. And um, we'll continue to follow it. We're just fascinated by all of it. And, um, you know, there's no doubt the team is on the ascendance uh, and clearly by getting its own uh, arena uh, someday, knock on wood, uh, it is perhaps the uh, uh, the opportunity to uh, finally become its own sort of uh, standard, I guess, of basketball without sort of being sort of that second or third class citizen in the current arena that the uh, Lakers and the L.A. Kings currently occupy at the Staples Center. All right. So that's that's kind of the uh, sort of uh, enticing subject we're going to get into this week with Mick Minas coming up uh, in just a couple of moments as we talk about the curse, if you will, that is of the current Los Angeles Clippers. And by the way, Mick's book is called The Curse, The Colorful and Chaotic History of the L.A. Clippers. So uh, there's nobody more qualified than uh, than Mr. Mick Minas to uh, to guide us through this uh, this little escapade. And we're going to get into it in just a moment. Uh, before we do so, of course, we want to say uh, thank you to uh, our good friend in San Diego, uh, conveniently, Dean Mitchell and his friends at the site known as Sports History Collectibles. Com. Yep, sportshistorycollectibles.com. All kinds of awesome souvenirs uh, of yore from teams and leagues, uh, either previously dom- domiciled or previously incarnated or just frankly just out and out defunct and no longer with us. And it's just a, it's a treasure trove. It's 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 basically a curated eBay, if you will, but in a well-lit kind of, uh, uh, you know, high-class kind of uh, environment. You don't have to worry about the quality of the, of the goods at sportshistorycollectibles.com because you know it's top quality stuff. And of course, uh, we've got a uh, not only a promo code for you, that's good seats, and you're going to get 15% off all of your purchases at sportshistorycollectibles.com using that promo code good seats. Uh, but you're also conveniently going to find a whole smattering of stuff around the Clippers, both the LA version as well as the San Diego version. Uh, some really cool stuff. If you click click on through, you see, and they're all well photographed and stuff, so you can really get a sense of what you're going to be getting, and 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 get a real confident sense that uh, what you're uh, purchasing is uh, is of, of the highest quality. But there's a, a smart looking San Diego Clippers 1990, uh, excuse me, 1981 82 media guide that's there. You want some uh, San Diego Clippers uh, ticket stubs from the early 80s? They got those in there. There's uh, there's a cool uh, set of uh, San Diego Clippers schedules. Pocket schedules, really cool stuff there. What else? We got some LA Clippers stuff. So, uh, including especially some of the uh, first year Clippers exploits in Los Angeles. For example, the uh, they've got a, a, the Los Angeles Clippers inaugural season ticket brochure in there, uh, and I think the theme uh, that year was Clippers basketball taking LA by storm. Well, I I don't know if it was storm. Maybe it was, it was certainly cloudy with uh, a hefty amount of showers and thunderstorms for sure. But uh, those are among the many items you're going to find, uh, not just Clippers uh, related, but uh, basketball generally and tons of other sports at sportshistorycollectibles.com. You will waste quite a bit of time for sure. It's not a waste. It's it's a quality 
uh, use of your time. But I guarantee you, you will not get that time back because you will be fascinated by literally all the things available. Uh, and again, of course, when you uh, find a, an item or two or seven uh, that you're really interested in, of course, please, by all means, use that promo code GOODSEATS. And again, get 15% off all of your purchases. Once again, it's sportshistorycollectibles.com. I almost feel like we need a theme song for that or maybe a jingle or something like that. Dean, maybe you can get on that. Uh, but once again, sportshistorycollectibles.com. We thank you uh, to Dean and uh, uh, his pals uh, in San Diego. Check them out. Uh, as they say, you'll be glad you did. All right. So uh, enough of that. And uh, onwards, shall we, into... Uh, you know, it, this book is fascinating. This conversation is fascinating. This topic is endlessly interesting. This is the story of the current L.A. Clippers and the curse, quote unquote, uh, the colorful and chaotic history of this uh, very interesting team. Uh, as we get into it with uh, with Mick Minas, our new pal down in Australia. And uh, here's our chat. And uh, please, as always, enjoy. I can tell by your Brooklyn accent that uh, you're not from uh, the L.A. Or, or the San Diego or the uh, area. Uh, how did you come across the Clippers in general and then why to sort of go deep in a book and, and investigate this crazy story or at least uh, their iteration in San Diego and maybe their earlier stays in L.A.? Why and how? Um so I, 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 in my sort of previous life, I was a basketball coach down here in Australia Um and um, we, we took a team over to the States in 20, 2008 and um, traveled sort of around California and Nevada and Arizona and played um, some sort of junior colleges and some, some lower level, like sort of Division three college, that sort of level. And um, part of that trip was we got to go and see the Clippers season opener. And so everyone on the team was really excited to go see the Clippers and the Lake, and they're playing the Lakers. And the Lakers were coming off the NBA Finals loss to the Celtics, and the Clippers had just signed Baron Davis. So it was just sort of like, you know, big build up um, to the game, and especially a big build up for us coming from Australia. And for a lot of the people on the team, it was their first exposure to a live NBA game. And anyway, the Clippers ended up losing by I think it was like forty points. But it was like they were down by 20 points at quarter time. It was just they were just completely blown off the court. And it struck me as being, well, one, it was a very disappointing um, game to watch. But it also struck me as being, you know, like you, you see blowouts in the NBA all the time, but you don't often see blowouts on opening night um, where, you know, both teams are relatively healthy. And so um, that kind of that kind of sparked an interest um, with myself and someone else who was on the team and we got back to Australia and we would sort of send each other articles back and forth about the Clippers, like both the modern incarnation and, and sort of old stories about the Clippers. And the more I read, the more I sort of got interested and intrigued. And I already knew, I already knew sort of like half the Clipper history from my sort of just my previous reading and, and following of the NBA. And then I started finding out all these other really interesting, quirky stories and it, and it became sort of apparent that, like, someone should write a book about this. And then I thought, I should write a book about this. Well, that's interesting. So this was a Clippers game at the old L.A. sports arena, correct? No, this was at Staples. Got it. So this is even even sort of in their most current modern sort of existence, yeah. even tri prior, probably prior to Balmer, right? 
Yeah. Uh, so this was yeah. So still Donald, Donald Sterling was still the owner. Um, and, and I think the thing that really fueled that sort of interest in the Clippers was that they had just signed Baron Davis. And so he was a, you know, uh, L.A. local coming home to play for the Clippers, you know, very high profile player and also extremely popular player um, in the in the sort of Southern California area. And I don't think anyone I don't think we didn't go into the game expecting the Clippers to finish the season with a better record than the Lakers. But the sort of at the time, the sort of. Um, local uh, media hype around the team was that like, oh, they had a good team and they looked like they could potentially be a playoff team that year. And, and to see them lose and just to lose in such a sort of um, insi- like to put forward such an insipid performance on opening night, it really sort of struck a chord with me. So, okay. So you say, and your friends, you kind of sort of, you kind of semi adopted this Clippers franchise as, as a, as an entree to the NBA, but a curiosity at that. Where do you start, and and how do you kind of go into finding out this situation? Like, where is the demarcation, right? Because I, it's pretty clear in this book that you kind of really start sort of with the, I guess, San Diego incarnation, and kind of just kind of bow humbly towards the Braves that came before it from Buffalo. Yeah, and I, and I, it's interesting. I did a lot of research into the Buffalo era, and a lot of it ended up getting chopped. Um, just purely for length, because I mean the book the book is long as it is, um, and you know you could make a case to say that you could start the book from the Donald Sterling era and just and just focus on Donald's time as owner. But I thought that the early years in San Diego were really intriguing, so I didn't want to lose them, um, and I, I thought the Buffalo time was really interesting as well. So I made the decision to shorten the Buffalo the the sort of the 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 depth we went into in the Buffalo era, I, I kind of shortened that and, and focused on how the Buffalo Braves morphed into the LA Clip, into the San Diego Clippers, which in and of itself is a really fascinating story. Yeah, so let's talk about that. We we've had a, a couple of, uh, of of explorations of the of the Braves. Tim Wendell, uh, who's written the seminal book about it, we kind of kind of went deep on that, and, and we've had actually we've got an episode in the can coming up in a couple of weeks on um, an enigmatic player that uh, actually uh, was in both incarnations, both the Braves and the Clippers, he being one Marvin Barnes. But so how does San Diego then get on the radar of the folks in Buffalo? How does that sort of cross-country transformation happen? Because San Diego had its dalliances with pro basketball, you know, in prior to that, right? I mean, you had the conquistadors of the ABA, which became the sales and kind of sort of literally and figuratively sailed away with the ABA itself. And you also had the the San Diego Rockets, which had bolted, you know, in the early part of the 70s as well to to Houston, right? There was a time when San Diego had two pro basketball teams. Uh, but, you know, for a number of years, frankly, hadn't. So, so what made the, I guess, Braves organization think that San Diego was going to be golden this time around? Well, it's very complicated. I mean, it's one of the most intriguing sort of transactions in NBA history. So um, you had, um, and, and, it, and it links into a, an, another NBA team. So it, it basically links into what was happening in Boston at the time. So the Celtics had been bought by Irv Levin, who was a Hollywood movie producer who um, first year he owned the Celtics, they won the NBA championship. That was like in 76. So he had this great start to his tenure as owner, but that quickly soured. And over the next two years, um, some key players were moved on, um, one being Paul Silas. And they were moved on mainly for financial um, 
considerations, but that being the team didn't want to pay what the sort of going rate was for those players. Um, and, you know, obviously Boston fans, particularly at that time, were very used to success. I mean, there was a period there for a 20-year period where the Celtics won 13 of the 20 NBA championships. So, you know, this is a time, this is an era where the Celtic fans were used to, you know, a season that didn't finish with the championship was considered a failure. And here you have the Celtics missing the playoffs altogether. So um, Irv Levin became the sort of public enemy number one in Boston. He was the person who took the rap for, you know, the team's uh, floundering fortunes. Um, so Irv Levin started thinking, I want to get out of Boston. Now, I'm not enjoying this. Um, and um, and at the same time, he was also, I mean, he lived in Hollywood. So he was sort of splitting his time between, you know, traveling from Southern California over to Boston to watch games and then returning back to California for his work commitments. Um, so Levin wanted to move the team to California. Now, obviously, the NBA didn't want the Boston Celtics to be re- relocated. I mean, that was their um, uh, sort of most famous brand franchise they had. And the last thing you'd want to do was to pull them out of Boston and move them over to California. But luckily, at the same time, you had a guy who owned the Buffalo Braves who was looking to get out of Buffalo. Um, so that, I mean, and he's an interesting character as well. So he's John Y. Brown was the owner of the Braves at the time. Um, and he had previously been an ABA owner. He owned the Kentucky Colonels in the ABA and he'd folded that team, took a big payout from the NBA. Um, and then he used the money to buy the Braves. And, um, so he wanted to leave Buffalo and someone from the NBA had the bright idea of saying, well, we could fix both of these problems if we get these two owners to swap their teams, like to swap ownership of their teams. So uh, at the end of the year owners meeting, they, they uh, um, a sub meeting was sort of um, organized where John Y. Brown and Irv Levin sat down and they came up with a plan whereby Irv Levin would become owner of the Braves. John Y. Brown would become owner of the Celtics. And then the Celtics would stay in Boston and um, Irv Levin would be free to pull the Braves out of Buffalo and move them over to California. And thus, thus the San Diego Clippers were born. Yeah, that's fascinating. We've obviously talked about John Y. Brown with the Colonels actually this week with our episode with Dan Essel. So it's, it's very interesting because both, both uh, Levin, of course, but uh, interestingly, uh, Brown, right, you know, arguably are sort of part of the ancestry of this, uh, this franchise, right? So, but why San Diego, uh, as far as you can tell, uh, versus, you know, given that the both the NBA and the ABA had uh, literally come and gone uh, not too uh, many years earlier, right? So the Braves moved in 78, right? And I think uh, what the ABA was done around 76, the sales were kind of done a little bit before then, and, and the Rockets had left even, you know, a few years earlier than that. So I, as far as you can tell, why San Diego the, uh, being the promised land? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess Levin had the so w- w- John Y. Brown when he was he was considering moving the Braves and he was act- actively shopping the franchise around and, and fielding offers from all different cities and I remember Dallas was one, San Diego was one, um, and I think for Levin, San Diego ticks tick the box in that he would be he would be able to he would be able to have his his. Um, work interests and his basketball interests and still be at the same home base. So he'd be able to, you know, travel to 
Los Angeles to do his movie stuff and then have an easy commute to San Diego to to be part of the basketball stuff. So I think, I think I mean, it seems kind of bizarre now to think about, you know, making such a big commercial decision on the basis of making your commute to the game um, easy. But I think essentially that's what it would have come down to for Irvlev and that he couldn't put the team in Los Angeles because the, the Lakers were already there and the NBA rules precluded moving the team to Los Angeles. Um, and so I think San Diego was kind of like the next best option. Yeah, well, in venture capital, right? I guess that's that's looked upon as being uh, uh, ingenious, right? You want to stay within a few, you know, 50, 100 miles of your investments so that you can supposedly, you know, uh, add value and be uh, be regularly on call. But, well, it, it, that's especially interesting given the dalliances and then ultimately the move to L.A. years down the road. But, um, all right, so so the Clippers, let's discuss them as San Diego, right? So it's new branding, it's a new team, uh, Gene Shue a decent coach, almost made the playoffs. Uh, some clear personalities already starting to uh, uh, to make their way into this team, including a, a, a one world be free, not his birth name for sure. Maybe you can give a little sense of sort of how they kind of made their initial mark on San Diego and, and, and how San Diego either embraced or didn't so early on. Yeah, I think that, that that first team is probably one of my favorite Clipper teams. Like I, I um, and I was lucky I got to interview a lot of the players from that first team and and Gene Shu. Um, and I think that he did a really good job in that. I mean, they won forty three games. They ultimately missed the playoffs, but they finished with a you know above five hundred record. And that was after a really bad start as well. I mean, they started off. I think they started off like six and 17 or something like that. And then they came back from that to finish with 43 wins. Um, and it was built on the back of, I mean, well be free was sort of the centerpiece of the team. Um, and he had been sort of a, uh, he'd been in the background in Philadelphia, you know, playing on that, that six, that really fantastic sixes team led by Dr. J but he was clearly a guy that was ready for sort of his own team and to be to take center stage. Um, but the things that characterized that team was just that they had a, they were really a close knit team. You know, all the people I spoke to reflected on across their NBA careers, playing in lots of different cities, lots of different teammates and everything. And that, that first year in San Diego being one where they felt like it was more than just a team that they were almost like family and the players used to do things outside of the games and trainings together. And they had this really good camaraderie that um, translated into uh, success on the court, probably above what was expected of them. Well, uh, Free was uh, uh, something else right out of the gate, right, uh, in his uh, new new place. I mean, you know, both uh, his, those first two seasons, um, he and Gervin really kind of lit it up. I mean, Free, I think, was the second leading scorer both of those seasons, right? I mean, he yeah, was yeah, not correct. afraid to shoot. And, and I, I, do I have this right? I mean, the fans even got into it like, I mean, maybe even comically, right? Where as soon as he got the ball, they were telling him to shoot because he had these great rainbow shots. It, no matter yeah, what yeah. it was in the court. And he was, um, uh, he, he was, he was snubbed for the all-star team in his first, in his first year with the Clippers. And the second year he made the all-star team. But yeah, both years he finished. And I think the second year he finished like 0. 0.6 or 0. 0.8 points behind Gervin for the leading scorer. So he was like, you know, marginally off being the NBA's top scorer. What was your sense of how they were received by the fans and, and the press in San Diego? I mean, I, there had to be a little bit of, 
eyebrow raising and or, you know, looks askance that, you know, here here yet again was another pro basketball team where two, you know, solid shots or two and a half solid shots, if you can't you consider the, the renamed conquistadors into the sales of the ABA kind of floundered. I think at first that was the attitude, and I think that by halfway through that first season uh, that they had won people over. And I think that that just goes to show, I mean, you would know this, Tim, like, you know, time and time again in professional sports, people love a winner. You know, if, if, if your team is winning, it's very easy to sort of get community support and get the media support and get people interested. Um, and, and you can have the best marketing campaign and all that sort of stuff behind the scenes. But nothing sort of builds support better than a, um, a successful team. And I think that that's what that first year Clipper team did, that they they very quickly proved that they were a legitimate NBA team. They had some really good wins in the second half of the season, as, uh, at home especially. I think they beat the Celtics at home and um, a couple other wins against some of the best, like, like the top teams in the NBA. And so I think that that, that, that ultimately what – if you look at the crowd figures from that year – they start off pretty mediocre, but by the end of the season, they're playing in front of sellout crowds at home. And that, to me, is, is attributable to the fact that they were winning games. And the fans in San Diego could see, unlike the other two, you know, the Rockets and the um, the Sales or that, the ABA version, that, that, that they could see that this team was a legitimate pro basketball team. Well, and it seemed like after that first season, arguably the honeymoon, right, that it, it was certainly on the ascendance because in comes probably one of the more uh, well-known figures in the, uh, the the checkered history of this franchise, a guy by the name of Bill Walton, the San Diego native he. And I, I, I get the sense that his his arrival for the next season, this is the 79-80 season, uh, was looked upon as, you know, a true shot in the arm for this team, fledgling team. I mean, he was only two years behind having won the uh, NBA championship and MVP award with the Trailblazers. So, uh, you know, this is arguably before the, you know, the legendary knee trouble and stuff. But I, him coming on the teams probably just seemed like a cinch, no? Yeah. I mean, it was it was a very risky move insofar as it depends on how you looked at him. So if you looked at Bill Walton with the glass half full approach, you say he was arguably the best player in the NBA when he was healthy. I mean, he played the, the year that Blazers won the championship, they played the Lakers and Kareem in the Western conference finals and the Western conference finals were over in eight days. I mean, they, they swept the Lakers for zip and Walton outplayed Kareem. Um, so, I mean, he, he won, He'd had championship in Portland with a with a modestly talented team, um, you know, and they beat that that really stacked Philadelphia team in the finals. He had a finals MVP award. The next season, he won the league MVP despite the fact that he missed twenty two games, I think, with injury. You could check that, but he missed. He, he no one has missed more regular season games and still claim the league MVP award than Bill Walton, and it's by a mile. Like no one's come close to missing as many games as he did. So that could tell you. You can look at that one of two ways. You could say, well, Bill, look at how talented Bill Walton was. He was able to win MVP despite missing a quarter of the season, or you could look at it and say, wow, like this is a person who who missed a quarter of the season. Why did he miss a quarter of the season? Because he had chronic injury problems. And he had never come close to playing 82 games during his time at Portland. I think, I think 
I think across the four years at Portland, he had played half the regular season game, something like that. So he, he had, he had consistently had injury problems. So the, 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 the downside would be, well, we're signing this person. Do we know that he's going to be able to, we, we're going to contribute, we're going to commit a lot of resources to getting Bill Walton here. Do we know that he's going to be able to actually get out there and play for us? Um, but that was a risk that the, the Clippers ultimately decided to take. And, and history, hindsight shows that that they got the very, very, very injured version of Bill Walton. Yeah, well, and he also had taken the year off, so to speak, because he was having a, a dispute with uh, with the Blazers management about how, I guess, he and some of his teammates were being treated and whatnot. So, I mean, he, he, had, he really had sat out the 78-79 season as well. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess you can see it as a risk, and obviously hindsight is, is 20-20, but certainly – things beyond his playing capabilities, right? I mean, he's a San Diego native. He's a name, certainly well-known in Southern California from his uh, legendary collegiate uh, career. And it looks like the, the Blazers did pretty well by by trading him, getting a, a few good resources in, uh, in Kermit Washington and, and Kevin Kerner, and, and even a, a first-round draft pick for the next year, for God's sakes. I mean, a pretty big move that, um, you know, I think pretty quickly kind of uh, proved to be not a fair exchange, given all the injuries and uh, and and whatnot. Yeah, and, and and actually, one of the interesting things, Tim, was at the time. Uh, so he signed as a free agent, but they didn't have the same free agency rules that they have now. And so, what happened was, if you signed another team's free agent, um, you had to compensate the team. Um, so you couldn't just sign a player and then that was it. You had their rights. You had to then compensate the team that you took the player from. So Portland and, and the Clippers had gone back and forth about what was fair compensation. And the Portland um, front office were just asking for ridic- like ridiculous uh, level of compensation. I think they wanted four first-round draft picks, three of the Clippers starting five, and like a huge sum of money um, – and, and so, so, so they couldn't come to an agreement. And so, what happened was, the commissioner of the NBA, Larry O'Brien, had to um, had to decide what was fair compensation. So, in that year's training camp, they actually started out with everybody there training all together. So, Bill Walton, when he was first at, at training camp, he was there with Kermit Washington and Randy Smith. They were all there together playing. And um, Gene Shu told me that there was a a um, a training session where um, they got they got notified by the league which players were going to be leaving, um, and so then Gene Shu left the court, went to his office, and called the players in one by one to inform them that they were actually heading to Portland. And Bill Walton was out there on the court, and he could just see players leaving the court to go and meet with Gene Shu, and then them sort of packing up their stuff and leaving. And he just felt horrible at the thought that, oh, here I am, I'm breaking up this really. And you remember we were saying five minutes ago. That initial Clippers team, one of the things that the sort of foundation was built upon was the close-knit relationships that they had. And now, all of a sudden, some of the most important parts of that team, especially Kermit Washington and Randy Smith, were um, being shipped off to, to allow Bill Walton to join the team. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So it truly, it wasn't a trade per se. It was a free agency thing with some intervention from, from the league about sort of yeah. equitable. Uh, and that's interesting. Well, but I mean... That said, I mean, uh, you know, Walton was has been pretty outspoken about sort of, in retrospect, his uh, his playing days in in San Diego. I mean, he he sat out the season, he re-injured the same foot, and and as he had in uh, extensive rehab. I mean, he certainly crawled his way back 
you know, into more playing time over the years. But, you know, he was still part of the roster for, what, two or six seasons, right? But but something interesting also happens during that course, and maybe we'll get to his denouement in a minute. He didn't take very long uh, for Levin and, and uh, his associates to kind of bag on the franchise not too soon after moving to San Diego. Was it two seasons? That, and then they finally figured out that they, they wanted out? Uh, three seasons, I believe. Oh, there you go. Right. I believe it was three seasons. Um, so yeah, Levin, but I think Levin made the decision. He had some personal stuff uh, happening at the time as well. His second wife had passed away. The team was not doing very well. He was copying a lot of, um, criticism in the media for signing Bill Walton because Bill Walton across his first. So yeah, it was three seasons because across Bill Walton's first two seasons with the Clippers, he played a total of 14 games. Um, it's unbelievable. So, and no matter yeah. no wonder people get on. I mean, it's just, you know, and some of that's bad luck, but you know, so many, so much hype and resources and frankly lost players in the process. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's, I don't know, like if I was in that position, I probably would have made the same move. I mean, like, because Bill Walton's a transcendent player and, and, you know, you, like you said, all the factors going in his favor, like that he was a hometown you know, high profile, very unique player. Like I don't think the NBA's ever had a big man who can pass the ball like Bill Walton before or since. Um, so I, 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 but yeah, so Levin ultimately made the decision that he wanted to um, sell the team. And one of the things that did just seem, I don't know, it's like a, a lesser known fact was the first person that he seriously investigated selling the team to was to Phil Knight, the, the Nike CEO, um, and uh, Phil Knight and Irv Levin had gone as far as to draw up like a schedule of payments of like what date, what amount of money would be paid um, for transferring the ownership of the team across. Um, and then Phil Knight, for some reason, um, got cold feet and pulled out of the deal. Uh, and Irv Levin then went to pursue sort of legal action against Phil Knight, saying, "Well, we had we had an, we had an agreement." And um, presented the sort of schedule of payments that they had drawn up, and the court said, "No, no, no, that's not an uh, that's not a legal agreement. You just had a discussion about how the payments might work." Um, but in a, in an alternate universe, Phil Knight could have been the owner of the Clippers instead of um, Donald Sterling, uh, which would have made for a. Um, I, I dare say that the next thirty years would have played out very differently. Hang in there, everybody. We're going to be back to our conversation in just a second. But uh, time quickly to pay a couple of bills. And uh, you've heard me talk about The Great Courses Plus on uh, some previous episodes. And if you haven't tried it, well, by golly, this is uh, one of your last opportunities to get a free month of unlimited video learning with the world's greatest professors when you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash goodseats. You're going to get a free month of unlimited access to the entire library of thousands of hours of great lectures and tons of great coursework uh, from The Great Courses Plus. Look, you're interested in things like sports psychology. Uh, You ever wonder if there's life on Mars? You want to learn how to invest or or possibly uh, uh, improve your your muscle tonage with uh, strength training? Well, there's a whole bunch of those kind of courses and more across topics like history and science and food and wine and various hobbies, health and fitness personal and professional development, you name it. And I I highly recommend their brand new course, 
uh, made uh, or put together in conjunction with uh, National Geographic uh, called Fundamentals of Photography. Yeah, you kids today, you think with your uh, your uh, smartphones, you think you can kind of handle everything. Yeah, I got all kinds of filters and lenses and stuff, and, and you've got it all covered, right? Well, no, no, you don't, Einstein. You've got lots of uh, amazing uh, technical capabilities that only a professional photographer uh, and one you can learn from uh, at The Great Courses Plus can teach you. Uh, things like aperture and 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 lens uh, sizes and, and uh, things like uh, shutter speeds and and. You know, there's all kinds of stuff and there's different ways to shoot stuff, whether it's digital or, God forbid, you even use film for that sort of high quality, uh, uh, you know, sort of retro look. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that you uh, you young whippersnappers have no idea. And I highly encourage you to check out Fundamentals of Photography among the dozens and dozens of other great courses and hundreds and thousands of hours of great learning that will be yours, all yours, at The Great Courses Plus. And again, that's The Great Courses Plus dot com slash good seats and you will get one free month of unlimited yes i said unlimited access to the entire library of the great courses plus service and and uh, and offerings it's a tremendous opportunity there's so many great things in there and uh, i guarantee that uh, a month will not be enough and you will be converted like i am and have been to the great stuff that is the great courses plus once again the great courses plus.com slash good seats for a limited time offer of a free month of the entire service unlimited access uh, you get the app you can stream it to any device you can download them you can listen to them in audio form it's all there for you once again at the great courses plus.com slash good seats get your free month enjoy it let me know how you love it because i guarantee you will and now back to our conversation So what was it about Sterling that kind of uh, raised his profile and ultimately uh, cinched uh, the deal for him? He was by trade a, a real estate guy and, and an attorney, I guess, by uh, by education, right? So uh, was he a Southern California kind of guy too? What what was his story and, and why why the NBA and the Clippers? So uh, the Donald Sterling Los Angeles Clippers uh, – it all begins with actually Jerry Buss buying the Lakers because when Jerry Buss bought the Lakers, um, it, the, the it may not seem like a lot of money now, but but at the time he paid over sixty seven million dollars for a package of assets, and that and that the assets were the Lakers, the Los Angeles Kings, the Forum, and also a big block of land in Nevada. And obviously, $67 million is a lot of money today. I mean, it's a lot of money in the 70s. If you say in the sort of mid-70s, $67 million is a huge sum of money. And he didn't actually have um, that amount of cash to be able to pay for it. So he needed to liquidate some of his assets quickly. Now, Jerry Buss uh, moved in the same circles as Donald Sterling. Um, And uh, so Donald Sterling at the time, as you said, he was a lawyer but he had in, he had invested most of the money he'd earned through being a lawyer into property, and, and you know Donald Sterling had copped a lot of criticism, uh, especially in the last sort of five years. But um, he was a very visionary in terms of the way he built his real estate portfolio. I mean, he realised that that the population boom was coming to California, and he bought up a lot of property um, when it was very cheap. 
and held on to it and didn't sell anything, refinanced, bought more property, refinanced, bought more property. And this is the way he built his wealth. So when Jerry Buss came along and said, hey, I need some money. Can I sell? I think it was 11 apartments that he wanted to sell. Um, Donald Sterling stepped in and said, yep, I'll buy them for you. So Donald Sterling actually played a role in Jerry Buss becoming owner of the Lakers. Now, when Buss became owner of the Lakers, he won the championship in his first year. Sterling was sitting on the sidelines watching this, saying, oh, my friend's just bought this team. He's won a championship. The media love him. He's got this big profile now. He's friends with Magic. He's, you know, moving, shaking around Los Angeles. And I think Donald Sterling wanted a piece of that action as well. Um, He was only 47 at the time he bought the Clippers, but he had a lot of uh, money. I think his, his net worth was estimated at over 300 million at the time. Um, and so when Irv Levin was looking for someone to offload the team to, uh, Donald Sterling was a like a likely candidate. So Sterling comes in and, and kind of, I want to say shoots his mouth off, but he, he, he vowed to spend lots of money to build him into contender. I think he famously said, or maybe some advertising said, my promise that I will make you proud of the Clippers. I think that's uh, an interesting uh, a setup that uh, is another sort of plank on the uh, on the doom that uh, this ship uh, was starting to uh, to take on. I mean, I, I guess he was jealous uh, or wanting to emulate what uh, what Bus and his family had done relatively quickly with uh, certainly the Lakers a little bit later, the Kings, but and the Forum, of course, too. But it just seems like he kind of you know got off on the wrong foot, and maybe it was bad luck, or maybe it wasn't luck at all. Yeah, he. I mean, he came in. He, you're right. He took out. He, he took out um, bill uh, advertising, like big billboards around San Diego. But instead of promoting, you know, the the team and the star players, he put his own face on the billboards. Um, he took out a full page ad in the San Diego newspaper, saying that I think he wrote like an open letter to the uh, fans of San Diego, promising that he was going to make the team winner and he'd spend what it took. But you know, professional sports is filled. In, throughout the history of, of owners coming in and thinking that it's going to be, um, you know, that their success in other fields is going to translate to their success in, in sports ownership, franchise ownership, and that they'll be able to just sort of click their fingers and make a few moves. And But, you know, it doesn't work like that. And, and I think he found out very quickly that it was going to be a much more difficult task than what he had initially anticipated. So I guess what we know now, but it's I, I don't know where it was evident or sort of becoming evident, but um, I, promising to spend money. I mean, this is we've heard this theme many, many, many times, right? The the sort of you, you buy the franchise and then you kind of also then need to cr- continue to invest to actually run the franchise. And it seems like maybe that second part was elusive, if, if I could construct the narrative a little bit well i mean I, he wasn't well okay was he or wasn't he a cheapskate i guess i mean bill walton i mean famously i don't know so famously there's a great quote that i found in my my crack research is um you know besides sort of hounding himself uh walton on sort of his you know less than stellar career in san diego i think he obviously felt quite bad about his injuries and, and what he couldn't do in his own hometown but he you know he also reserved some some pretty not so shy uh, comments about uh, about Sterling. I, the quote that I got here was the checks bounced higher than the basketballs when Donald Sterling took over. The basketball was awful and the business side was immoral, dishonest, corrupt and illegal. Other than that, it was all fine. I mean, yeah. stinging words. 
Yeah, and, and, and through my research for the book, there's like lots of examples of this type of um, this type of behavior. Um, so there was a guy, Ted Poldesky, who was a general manager for the team for a period of time. Sure. And uh, when he was fired, I think he was fired, uh, he filed a lawsuit against the team. Now, he alleged, so this is, these are only, I mean, and this is a big part of the Donald Sterling narrative, that there are a lot of allegations against Donald Sterling. Very few of them have ever been proven. So, um, but he alleged that as, as during his time working in the Clippers front office that he was asked to um, uh, uh, part of his job was um, to to partake in illegal activities. So things like they would willing they would knowingly send checks to creditors that they did they didn't sign on purpose knowing that then that they'd have to send the money back and send the check back to say hey guys you forgot to sign it or they would send checks to people that they owed money to knowing that there was no money in the bank account and that the checks would bounce um so i mean you you can look at the the cheapskate side of thing from the from the view of recruiting players but even if you look at just the basic thing about paying for hotel bills or uh, you know, paying people who have done work for the franchise, like graphic designers or people who are producing merchandise or whatever. And it seemed that Donald Sterling's ownership was characterized by um, a, a great reluctance to spend money, like very, very careful with the money and how it was spent. And um, which I don't think is unusual. I mean, I think that a lot, I think one of the misconceptions a lot of people have is that people who are wealthy are free and easy with their money. I mean, my experience is that people that are very, very wealthy are, are often very, very cautious with what they spend and how they spend it. Um, but I think that's the way that the franchise was run once Donald took over. And there are lots of stories from when I interviewed Paul Silas, um, who was the coach, um, uh, the first coach under, I believe the first coach under Donald Sterling's ownership. Uh, Paul Silas was asked to... Um, Paul Silas was asked to tape the players' ankles. Like Donald had asked him, oh, could we get rid of the trainer? If we sack the trainer, could you guys just do the taping of the players' ankles before the game? Um, and, you know, Paul Silas was laughing about this 30 years later. But it's like, what an absurd pros- uh, prospect. Like, so the person that's going to be in charge of the team, the person who's, you know, he's a somewhat of an authority figure, the players need to respect. And then before the game, is going to be sort of, down on their knees taping their ankles like it just shows a complete lack of understanding of the sort of dynamics of a locker room um and there's there's, there's countless examples of that like that that i came across during my time researching the book like another one was in his first season the clippers nearly forfeited a game because there was uh, part of the um agreement between the players and the league was that um any flight over two hours um, had to be first class flight. You know, these guys have some of their bodies are seven feet, six foot ten, and you know, to cramp them into economy for a long flight is, is, you know, quite frankly, not reasonable. Anyway, the Clippers were flying to Seattle, um, and they got to the airport and they were booked on an, a coach flight. And the, at the time, the team's union leader was um, Joe Jellybean Bryan, who's Kobe's dad. And they had a quick meeting, the players, and they said, we're not getting on the plane. We're not going to play the game. Like, you either put us in a first-class seats or we're not flying. 
Um, and there was a very real – Paul Silas told me that it was like a very real prospect that the game was, was going to be cancelled because they the players were just adamant that they were not going to fly and um, they couldn't they couldn't change them to first-class seats at that late, late time. And in the end, Paul Silas was able to use his sort of personal relationship with Joe and the other players to say, if you guys get on the plane and play this one game for me, I promise you that this will never happen again. And – they went up, they played in Seattle, they lost. And then when they returned back to San Diego, Paul Silas just went to Donald and said, like, this can never happen again. Like, you cannot book them on coach seats because you want to save yourself money. And this is the way that the franchise was run. Well, and it's it showed on the court too, right? I mean, Silas, I mean, you got to give him credit. I mean, he lasted three seasons through all of this, including – well, I, I, you look at the stats. I mean, I don't think they got above fourth uh, in their division – God, I think once maybe in 10 years, right? Even going into Los Angeles. And and 81, 82, I mean, they only won 17 games, for God's sakes. I mean, not only were they last in their division, they were they were a 207 record, right? So I, I I'm really curious to sort of was it sort of left hand and right hand, not, you know, I, or was it sort of all one big pile of of doom? I mean, I guess what Sterling's ways certainly didn't uh, uh, help the cause that much. But, you know, it, there are certain situations where, you know, you can kind of wall off the, uh, the 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 front office from you know the the play on the team. I mean, the fact that Silas was still the coach, you know, for those three years is is maybe a little testament to that. But I, I don't know. I, I get the gloom seemed to set in pretty early. It seems both on the court and certainly you know in the offices. I mean, in that first season, that's the season that Donald Sterling famously um, told a there was a luncheon of um, sort of local business people and stuff. Um, but someone had a tape recorder and recorded the comments. But he said that their aim was to finish last um, because at the time they were people were uh, the the rumor was that Ralph Sampson was going to come out of college a year early, and they wanted to try and draft Ralph Sampson. So he pub- publicly proclaimed that we're we're trying to lose as many games as we can to finish last to get Ralph Sampson, um, and that caused a huge scandal at the time because you know this guy had been owner of the Clippers for like three months or something, and here he is publicly talking about tanking. Now, throughout NBA history, there's been lots of teams that have deliberately lost games to to position themselves well for the upcoming draft, but you don't have the owner publicly proclaiming the fact that they're trying to lose games. And the players I spoke to who played on that team spoke about how that had a really negative impact on the sort of morale of the team that, Gee, you know... Thank- I mean, my yeah. <laughs> what what a, what a great uh, uh, you know I got your backs no no really <laughs> yeah 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 so I mean I think that he went from sort of saying yeah we're going to spend money we're gonna we're gonna do what it takes and then realized pretty quickly oh this team's not really that good and then quickly went the other way to say well let's see how much money we can save and and how sort of minimalistic we can run this operation all right well come eighty two or so uh, if there was any doubts about sort of the oddness i guess of 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 donald sterling's uh, approach to running a basketball team i you know some of the uh the interesting uh ideas and plans started really started to come out in, in public right so you know the nba finds him a bunch of money i guess for some of those comments about uh, the potential for tanking and maybe getting samson in, in the draft but he also i guess this is around the first time that he that publicly he uh kind of let loose the idea of he wanted to relocate the team to L.A., 
maybe some some interest, uh, some story around some, some of that, because I'm wondering if this was sort of a standard, you know, holding the current city hostage for a better arena or a better situation, or had he kind of had designs on L.A. maybe from the get-go or earlier on and, and really wasn't thinking about San Diego long-term at all? Yeah, look, I, I don't get the sense that it was around trying to get a better offer from San Diego. I don't know whether he initially bought the team with the intention of keeping them in San Diego, but one thing was clear that by the end of the first season, he decided, why don't I just go play in LA? Now, so so it was, it was the end of that first season. That's how quickly that they were sort of, you know, pulling the tent up and, and preparing themselves to move up the road. Was that was that an open – I'm sorry, and having not done the research as deeply as you have, was that kind of an open secret after that first season or – So what happened was they had a press conference uh, and they just announced, yeah, we're going to LA. And then um, – and so what had happened was the Los Angeles uh, sports arena had made a, a – um, sort of a, a pitch to the Clippers to say if you come because the Lakers had obviously moved from the sports arena to the forum. So the sports arena now had all these empty dates um, and they were looking for another tenant. Now so they had they had offered the Clippers, you know, X amount of dollars to come up and play there. Um, and so they just announced we're moving. Now the press conference was held before any discussion was had with the NBA. So the NBA knew nothing about this, and the, and Donald Sterling has has held a press conference. Now he was at the press conference, but he didn't speak a word. He just stood in the background, and the media said to Ted Poldesky was the guy that was taking all the fielding all the questions, and the media had said to Ted Poldesky like, why is Donald not saying anything? And he said, oh well, Donald's decided it's better not to say anything until it's all official with the NBA. It's like, well, if that's the case, wouldn't that wouldn't you then not have a press conference? Would you, wouldn't you not go and do it through the right channels and make sure it was all okay with the NBA? Um, now, the issues with that was that the the again the rules of the league was that they weren't allowed to move to Los Angeles unless the Lakers said it was okay. Now, clearly, uh, Jerry Buss and Donald had had conversations, and Jerry Buss was okay with him coming to Los Angeles. But but the problem was that the way he had done it. So when that after that press conference, this just set off like a chain reaction of lawsuits. There was like all these. This person was suing. There were season ticket holders that were suing Donald Sterling, saying you've sold us season tickets for the San Diego Clippers, um, and now you're moving the team. So you've engaged in sort of fraudulent um, trade. Um, the sports, the San Diego sports arena was suing the Los Angeles sports arena for trying to poach their tenant. There was just all these lawsuits going back and forth. Um, and I think that Sterling realized pretty quickly, oh, we've, um, this is not going to work. And then quickly retreated and said, oh, no, 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 we're going to stay in San Diego. Um, now, again, you imagine the impact this would have on the, the fan base of San Diego. So at that pre- second press conference, um, they were asked, Ted Poldesky was asked, like, so, so what's the commitment? Like, how long are you staying in San Diego? And he's like, oh, no, no, we're going to be here a long time. Um, but I don't think anyone really believed that there was any long-term plan to stay in San Diego from that point. Well, yeah, Genie's out of the bottle, right? So, and the team not doing any better. And uh, why would fans even come support? So it sounds to me like he, he kind of sort of exacerbated an already circulating drain downward, shall we say. Yeah, and I think at that point, it was probably similar to what John Y. Brown did in the last few years in Buffalo, in that if you know that you want to move a team that's your long-term plan, 
then it makes sense in the short term to let the team sort of suffer, you know, like to, to um, you know, you don't want to win too many games. You don't want to spend too much money. What you want to have is you want to have local fan interest dwindle and dwindle and dwindle so that if you then say we're moving, you're going to have less opposition to the move. And that's what the next two years in San Diego, my reading was that he was quite happy to just sort of let the team flounder while he worked on plan B to get to Los Angeles. All right. So the league clearly not happy about this, right? I mean, there's a point in, in 82, it looks like that uh, he was forced to at least uh, hand over the operations of the team. I mean, Alan Rothenberg, for God's sakes, you know, brought in to kind of become the team president, you know, he of, of, of soccer and, and Los Angeles uh, Olympics uh, doings and, and the World Cup uh, doings, et cetera. Later on, it seems like he also, Sterling, kind of recognized that uh, he might have had, a, a, a you know, the tiger by the tail a bit, too. And seeing his, I guess, his pal, Al Davis in the NFL, kind of doing the same things, trying to get out of Oakland and going to L.A., it seems like he almost got emboldened maybe by by some of that to kind of say, well, wait a minute, you know, if the league won't allow me to do it, well, why don't I just take him to court and, and just actually do it? Yeah. So, so, so two things you touched on there, Tim. So one is that the, the league had the chance to get rid of Donald after one season. So they, they had actually um, commenced proceedings to have him sort of kicked out of the league. Um, and that was done through two stages. The first stage was there was a meeting of six owners, I think it was six, um, that sort of met to say, are we going to refer this to the full um, owners meeting where everyone's present? And that they voted unanimously to say, yeah, we, we think we've got to get rid of this guy. He's not in the best interest of the league. Um, and then in that, in the weeks leading up to that full owners meeting, there was like multiple quotes in the media from other NBA owners saying, this guy doesn't have our support. Like, you know, our, our, us as a collective group of owners, we're in favor of getting rid of him. Um, you know, like the way he's running the team is just not what the NBA is about. Um, so, so, so there's the very, very high, high, high likelihood that, that the Clippers, were going to be taken off Donald Sterling. He was going to be forced to sell them. And, um, you know, I think I think that he, he made a sort of strategic decision to say, to stop the proceedings from happening and say, all right, I'll sell the team. You don't need to kick me out. I'll sell the team. And then amazingly, the NBA said, all right, you're going to sell the team. We'll just stop the proceedings to have the team taken off you. And then all he did was just sort of chill out for a few months, and then he went back to the NBA and said, "Oh, look, I'm going to make, I'm going to do things differently. Um, you know, I've got Alan Rothenberg on hand, and we're going to do this, and we're going to spend this money." And then it was seemed as if like all was forgotten, and that he was allowed to just continue to remain on as owner. But if if the league had have followed through, then Donald Sterling's time as Clippers owner would have been limited to just that one season. All right. Well, if that weren't enough and, and, and then, so then he moves the team, right? He basically moves the team to LA without the NBA's blessing and the league sues him. And then he countersues. Is that sort of what happens? Yeah. yeah. And so was, what you said was right. It was, it was Al Davis had done the same thing with the Raiders. And I think, you know, Donald by trade is a lawyer and he realized the NBA may not want me to move, but can they stop me from moving? And the only rule to stop him from moving was the one, the 75 mile rule, which was you couldn't move within the 75 mile radius of an existing team. And he knew that Jerry Buss was going to um, support him moving to Los Angeles. So he just said, we're moving. He just announced it and said, we're moving. And, and that was it. They were moving. Um, and I, I believe the 84 draft, but they still 
maybe the NBA still had the name as the San Diego Clippers on the draft. But there was a whole legal dispute where the NBA then sued the Clippers, the Clippers countersued. And that dispute sort of dragged on for a few years where they, they were playing in Los Angeles but there was a very real prospect that they could be forced to move back to San Diego and the team could be taken off Donald Sterling. But he just he he just made the call that um, that the, the law was going to be on his side and that he was going to win any lawsuit and just kind of doubled down and said, well, I'll see you in court, which is which has become kind of his modus operandi where he just, um, you know, take people to court and and um, and be prepared to, to fight it out in the legal arena. Well, that's just nuts. And 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 on the court, though. So let, let's let's shift back to that for a second, because I don't think there's any other word besides laughing stock, right? I, I remember this ba- vaguely as a kid. You know, it was always the Clippers. Is kind of like uh, you know, they're still. What is their deal, right? It was whether it was the distractions of the front office married with the lack of spending. It seems like the NBA had, you know, two or three times the trouble with this franchise on the court being certainly a big part of it. Yeah, and look, to be fair, I think that in the I think that there was a change in his uh, ownership philosophy. In the early days, I do believe that he was trying to put together um, good teams. I do believe that he wanted to be successful. Um, they were victims of a lot of bad luck in that, in that sort of mid-'80s to late-'80s period. Um, the, I mean, in the, in the sort of the early days in Los Angeles – I mean, they had their their, their trio of of uh, their sort of their big three, their best three players were Norm Nixon, Derek Smith, and Marcus Johnson, um, and that that was a really good. I mean, that was a really good nucleus to build a team around, um, and all three of them suffered serious long term injuries in the space of a few months of each other. Um, now, there's no there's no NBA team that can lose their three best players to um, injury to season-ending injuries and and not suffer sort of catastrophic results. Um, but that 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 period of time was very much characterised by just constant bad luck on the court of, um, you know, Marcus Johnson got injured. I mean, even the way they got injured, Norm Nixon got injured playing in a softball game um, in, in Central Park over the summer. You know, he stepped in a pothole and, and, and injured his knee. Uh, Marcus Johnson got injured because he ran into Benoit Benjamin's bulbous chest and and injured his neck um but he injured his neck crashing into a teammate's chest i mean even the even the even the uh ways the injuries occurred were were quite bizarre how do you stay a fan of this team or how can you become a fan of this team did you talk to anybody who was a fan or uh, of the team either in san diego or in their initial years in la or or we mostly focus on the story of the management and the the players and the coaching staff Look, I, my, my contact with the fans of the team has has really come more post publishing of the book. You know, lots and lots and lots of fans have got in contact um, with me, which has been really, really nice um, and really positive to hear. You know, good things about the book that they've enjoyed reading it. Um, and look, most of the people who've stayed fans of the team are just those that that very sort of loyal, um, you know, uh, fan base people especially people from the 80s era, they're people that didn't like the Lakers and so they wanted to support a local team and they didn't like the Lakers and um, were prepared to sort of um, stick through the Clippers through thick and thin. But it is it is a very interesting psyche to think that, like, uh, this team that really... It's hard to say because it's like... I was about to say this team that never had any prospect for success, 
But throughout their history, there's these constant times where things were looking up. There are lots of opportunities for optimism to creep in where you could look and say they've got a good team, they've got everything ready, all the pieces are in place, we're ready to make a run here. And it's only in hindsight that you look and say, well, there's 20 years here of, of just dismal play. But actually at the time, it wasn't 20 years of dis, uh, of, of sort of um, grey skies. There were lots of times in that period where it was like, it looked like they were all set to do well. And there were seasons where they got off to a really good start or where they had recruited and had a nice roster on paper in the off season. But then something always seemed to come along, um, whether it be just pure bad luck through injury or scandal or mismanagement, you know, tight-fisted owner. And some of it was self-inflicted wounds. But but throughout that period of sort of like the early eighties to sort of the early two thousands, there were lots of there were lots of times where it appeared that the team was going to do well. Yeah, it's just so. I mean, maybe spoken like a fan, right, or a true fan. It sounds like you're kind of saying more of the bad luck thing than the the ineptitude thing. But I, you know, okay. So Danny Manning, you know, number one draft pick in in eighty seven, eighty eight. Okay, tears his ACL, right, during the 88-89 campaign. Okay, that's bad luck, right, or whatever. But, you know, I though, there's a point at which, I mean, uh, you know, I'm thinking of like Santa Santa Anita right now with all the horses, you know, uh, being euthanized and, and all the troubles going on there right now. W- at what point does bad luck kind of, you know, it has a source, right? And, and I, there's an environment maybe that's uh, tight-fistedness. Maybe there's not enough towards medical training, or just the, the the morale and and that just begets uh, uh, bad vibes and and you know I, I don't know but I mean this is a team that it's just it's an it's unconscionable almost when you look at so there's a stat right so I know we're gonna project out but I think in in the 33 years Sterling owned the team right uh, this is through 2014 when he was forced to to sell it the Clippers lost 50 or more games 22 times 22 seasons. They, they lost 60 or more games in eight over eight seasons, and they once lost 70 games, and, and including not even including a, a, their uh, a nine and 41 record during the the the, the lockout season of, of 98 99. I mean, there's something to that beyond bad luck. No. Yeah, yeah, I agree completely, and I think that if you look at um, if you look at some of the uh, you know, uh, high-profile draft picks and things like that, and then you think what sort of environment they were going into, like in terms of, okay, Michael Obercanti drafted with the first overall pick. At the time he went to the Clippers, they didn't have a coaching staff in place. Like they didn't have a coach. And the reason for that was because Donald Sterling anticipated that there was going to be a lockout, and he decided, well, if I, if, if the lockout happens as I anticipate – I'm going to have to pay the salary of the coach and the assistant coach over the summertime, but there will be a lockout in place. So why don't I just wait? I won't appoint a coach yet and save myself some money. Now, that may sound fine from a sort of fiscal standpoint. The problem with that was that other teams were going out and appointing coaches during this time. So the Clippers were then missing out on the first choice, second choice, third choice coaches because they were all being snapped up by other teams. And there was no – when the lockout finished, there was no sort of structure in place to support the development of a young player like Oliver Candy. Now, if Oliver Candy gets drafted by the San Antonio Spurs, I don't think he would have gone on to have a Shaq-like career, but maybe he goes on to have a better career than what he did. 
But when you've got, like you said, there's there's an environment that's very toxic, very negative. T- people don't want to be there. Players who get traded there or get drafted there are unhappy to be there, especially guys who play to other NBA teams. So people who've come from other franchises. You know, when I interview players, some of them, players who were drafted by the Clippers said, oh, it wasn't that bad for me for the first few years. It wasn't until I left and went to another team. And then I realized just how under-resourced the Clippers were and, and, and how poorly run they were compared to other franchises. But the, but not having, yeah, like not having the, the same money spent on medical staff and training and, and monitoring the players' needs. Even things like they didn't have a, um, the Clippers didn't have a, a regular training base through the 90s. So they would be, the players would finish the game and then they would be told, okay, tomorrow you guys are going to, um, you know, Fairfax High School for training um, and and, tra- and and practice is going to be at um, 4 p.m. because that's the only time we can get the court because the Fairfax volleyball team's using it before then. And they would turn up for practice and the volleyball, the high school volleyball players would still be on the court playing volleyball and then they'd have to get the poles down and everything and, and wind the basketball hoops down before they started playing. Um, and that was the environment that they were operating in. Whereas other NBA teams had a regular training base, had regular practice times, you know, had a, a facility that they could go to to get, you know, massage and treatment and all that sort of stuff. So I, I, I think that there is, there's obviously a very big degree of bad luck, but I think it's also is linked to the way that the franchise was run. So what about the uh, the sports arena, right? Obviously, uh, an older facility relative to that of the of the uh, of the forum where the where the Lakers were playing. Obviously, this is before the Staples Center. And I'm just I'm frankly, I'm quite curious as to why bus would actually allow or, or at least not approvingly of a second team in L.A., which arguably, you know, uh, I think in today's world would have been looked at as a, you know, as a, an exclusive franchise for a metropolitan area. It feels to me like the Clippers experience at the game, certainly the play very much second tier to that of the Lakers. And and maybe, I don't know, the bus family didn't mind that because the Lakers were perceived as sort of the premier franchise in the NBA versus the Clippers. It's very interesting. Isn't that Tim? Because it's like you, I mean, in, in hindsight, you can say, Oh yeah, it was a, perfectly fine decision for Jerry Buss. But no one would have anticipated back in 1984 that the Clippers would have such sustained period of, of, of just, you know, cellar dwelling, lack of success. Um, and, 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 and equally, you couldn't have anticipated how much success the Lakers would have had in that time. And I mean, if if it goes any differently, if the Clippers were able to have, you know, say in the early '90s, the Clippers had five or six seasons of, you know, playoff basketball, maybe appearance in the NBA Finals. Let's say the Lakers had a sustained downturn at the same time when Magic retired, and they weren't able to get Kobe and Shaq. I mean, in that alternate universe, the Clippers would definitely be taking away some amount of the the sort of market share of the Lakers. So it is a really uh, interesting decision by Jerry Buss to allow to, to to just give the nod and to just wave them through. I mean, I can only think that it was linked to their sort of personal connection between the two guys. It, it couldn't have been made as a business decision. Or as a, even as a local rivalry, as, as MLS has done with LAFC and, and the Galaxy or, or the two New York teams, right? You know, they create a local derby. I mean, it's hardly a derby when when one of the teams can't even, you know, break 20 games winning in a season. Well, all right, but they also, though, 
Sterling was also pretty shrewd in trying to at least uh, cast an eye outside of the sports arena, which I'm sure, again, was not the sort of a fun arena for sure and and with character, I guess, but, uh, you know, not sort of the most modern of, of structures. Why not move the team to Anaheim? It's clear they played at the pond for a number of games uh, for a number of seasons. Wouldn't that have been an easier answer, right, with Orange County? That would have been a nice, you know, a a geographical separation from, quote-unquote, Los Angeles, uh, a more modern arena. Why not that? Yeah. So it was like in the mid-'90s where there was this flirtation between, you know, the the Clippers management and and the city of Anaheim. Uh, they started off playing some exhibition games, and then they and then they moved a portion of their schedule down there. Um, and initially, Andy Rosa, you know, made it made it known to say, "Well, we're not actually um, we're not moving to Anaheim. We're not sort of testing out as a this is a new home base. We're just trying to expand our fan base." Um, but at some point, after a couple of years of playing sort of five or six games down in Anaheim. Uh, the city of Anaheim sort of made a play to say, we want you to move here permanently. We're going to pay you. There was a big package on offer of like, you know, $90 million to sign sort of eight year contract to move your, you know, all 41 home games. The name of the team would be changed from the Los Angeles Clippers to the Anaheim Clippers. Uh, And, you know, when I was researching the book, you know, I was just thinking this move would have made a lot of sense. You know, the pond was a much more modern arena uh, obviously they'd been in LA for, you know, 15 years at that time and their brand was really quite toxic. And, and it's, it's like you, are looking at thinking how they're going to ever sort of recover here. I mean, you've got the, the least credible brand name in the NBA playing in the backyard of the most sort of marquee name in the NBA, or if not the most, the second most It's the Celtics or the Lakers or the Lakers or the Celtics. Right. So, it, it made a lot of sense. And so everyone was anticipating that they were going to move. You know, there was there was all these talks, high-level talks taking place between the Sterling and the mayor of Anaheim. And um, and I think everyone anticipated the move was going to happen. And when it didn't happen, um, again, like it was, it's on record, there's a quote, I think it's from Andy Rosa, where he says that one – no, from the – I think the quote's from one of the councilmen from um, Anaheim – where he says that one of the big stumbling blocks was that the commute for Donald Sterling from his Malibu home down to Anaheim was one of the big reasons why he didn't want to um, move the team. So you go all the way back to the, 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 the genesis of the team, which is Irv Levin wanted to have a closer commute um, and he wanted to move from Boston because he, he lived in Southern California and then, again, the same sort of theme coming through where the owner doesn't want to have to travel too far, doesn't have to drive too far to the games. And even though it probably would have made a lot of commercial sense to move the team, um, it never happened. Well, is it any reason why then people started piling on in the in the aughts, you know, uh, talking about how he was, by comparison, probably the one of the worst, if not the worst owner in professional sports? I mean, I... It just it, it, the hits just seem to keep on coming. I mean, ESPN, the magazine, and Forbes, and the New York Times, and the Sporting News, and I mean, I, I, I'm clear, I'm certain local media, and frankly, I'm sure the 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 NBA itself and national media. You know, it just it, there's you know, moribund is is maybe too generous a word, and 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 all these other sort of opportunities and or shenanigans, I guess. I, I okay, let me I'll throw it out there, and then you you react to it, but. 
were, were those racist remarks in 2014 that ultimately landed him not only in trouble, but on the docket to, to sell the team as a fan, was that the best thing that ever happened to the franchise? Yeah. I mean, I think so. I think, I think that the, the team was, the team was doomed so long as Donald was in charge. Um, and there was no way, I mean, you could see what happened in 2014. He wasn't giving up. He, Donald Sterling's philosophy, the way he made his money was to never sell, uh, you know, an asset. There was no way he was going to get rid of the Clippers. No way. And and you could see he went down swinging. There was, he was not going to give up ownership of that team. It, it, and, and so it, w- it was going to take something sort of uh, monumental like what happened. Like, you know, saying that's never this, I mean, you can imagine at the time that that happened to him, that was when I was in the middle of researching and writing the book. And it was just surreal for me personally. It was just like, I can't believe that this is happening, that the, the, this team that I'm writing about, where I, where I started writing about them, they were this sort of niche um, franchise that like not many people outside of, you know, people who live in uh, Southern California and or NBA fans, but, you know, they weren't they weren't a team that was you know, on the on the the um, forefront of sports fans around the world's minds. And then all of a sudden this, this scandal happened with Donald Sterling um, with, with the, with this conversation being recorded. But, but uh, I mean, Steve Barmer's brought a completely different ownership philosophy to the team, which has allowed, which has allowed them to, you know, I mean, you look at where they are now and they're, they're on paper, they seem like they're ready to contend for the championship. Well, but it's, it's so certainly, and, 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 and there's obviously new life, and, and obviously the team has become much more competitive. You know, Bomber certainly is quite the, uh, the uh, animated owner. And, and, you know, going back to what you said earlier, but, you know, Sterling is, is a great example of, of we've heard and seen this with various uh, ownerships uh, of various pro teams over, over the many decades, right? It's sort of the, you know, even, even if you own a franchise and you run lean and mean, you're still going to be for all intents and purposes in the major leagues, uh, going to see your asset increase in value so that even when you're forced to sell the team, you're still going to make a a, a handsome profit. But obviously you you don't engender a whole lot of love and uh, affection from a base of fans that, you know, we know sports, right? It's it's not just an asset, right? There are things that are much more less uh, tangible when it comes to sort of rooting for a, a professional sports team. And I think at least Balmer... At least on the surface, at least you know, comes across as being a fan invested in, into the success of the team and 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 wants to you know see the team and is uh, base with the fans uh, uh, you know succeed. But let, let's look at it also through you know a, a more pragmatic uh, uh, set of lenses here. There's still, if you will, the second or arguably the third tenant now in the Staples Center, which is arguably one of the most premier facilities uh, in the country, if not beyond. You know, there's still, I guess, rumblings about, you know, do you do you want to have two teams play in the same arena in, in the NBA when, you know, L.A. is such a gigantic market, you know, from a from the the idea, the opportunity of, of finding their own way and finding their own arena, if not in L.A. I mean, I OK, is it any better, I guess, is the question I'm trying to struggle with here. But Balmer certainly injected a lot of enthusiasm and, and, and attention to this franchise. But but can it ever get over the hump of being, you know, number two to the Lakers and, and arguably number three in their own building? Yeah, I'm I'm a big I'm a big advocate for, you know, if they move to Inglewood or if they move, you know, I I, I think that having 
two teams play in the same arena, it kind of makes it hard to distinguish the, the, the teams as being different. I, I think that like the Lakers being at the Forum and the Clippers being at the Sports Arena, it made them they were different teams and like going to the games was a different experience. You know, I mean now well, it's a different experience because they they there's no Lakers jerseys up. They put the big pictures of the Clippers plates up. But you know, it's the same arena, it's the same geographic location. And I think that if the team was based in a different area, that then you could have more sort of local links with the community in that area and the Lakers. So I, I, I'm a big fan. I think like, you know, the Brooklyn Nets and the New York Knicks um, is, 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 is a much better sort of model for the NBA to have than to have the two LA teams playing in the same arena. Um, and obviously, Barmer's doing a lot of um, work at the moment to, to move the team. And I, I, I think that would be a good outcome. Yeah. And uh, as we had with uh, our conversation with Dan Essel this week, you know, uh, Louisville, uh, very much, he's very much involved in trying to maybe bring a team to Louisville. I, I would argue there are a handful of teams uh, that are, uh, you know, if uh, holding their current cities hostage for arenas and all that kind of stuff, I, you know, I, again, I'm an outsider. I'm not a fan of, of the team. I, I, you know, I grew up on the East Coast. I've got other basketball loyalties. I only look at it through, I guess, the prism of history and the relative, you know, the woefulness, I guess, of this franchise, and maybe it's snake bit nature. But, you know, we see this play out. I mean, I've seen this in Major League Soccer, right? So here in Chicago, right, the Chicago Fire, you know, a very successful team out of the gate back in 98 and 2000 and some early championships and that kind of stuff. You know, they, they moved to an arena or a, a stadium uh, in the suburbs, not very conveniently uh, uh, accessible. I mean, now they're really talking about moving back to the city. Uh, of Chicago proper, and frankly, rebranding, right? So just whitewashing the entire name of the team. And I I don't know, the Clippers name, certainly, it's interesting. We love to regale in sort of the history. This is a long-lasting team and nickname uh, with <laughs> more negative, I think, association uh, than than positive ones. So I, I guess the question really is, even under new ownership or current, you know, the current ownership of Steve Ballmer team, you know, there is the arena thing. They are still the number two, if you will, basketball franchise in the L.A. area. There is that legacy, that history, that that cloud that still somehow overhangs them. Can they ever get over the hump? I mean, is it is it uh, I don't know. I, you just you have to wonder how this ultimately resolves itself and or gets to the promised land, if ever. Yeah, I, I'm kind of biased because because of my work on the book, it's, I feel like I wouldn't want them to change their name. I want them to stay in Southern California. Oh, they're forever um, the underdog, right? I mean, you know. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I think it makes it more special, especially you know, if if a team with Kawhi and Paul George on it, uh, like, can lead the LA Clippers to the championship. I think that's a kind of really special, a really kind of special ending for the. Well, not it won't be an ending as such, but uh, I think it's me. I think it's really meaningful, and I I I, I don't I like the idea of. Um, I think they should embrace their history more uh, rather than try and turn away from it to say, well, look at what we were and look what we've become. I, I did expect when Barmer took over, when, when they kind of got the rebranding happen and the new logo and the new jerseys and everything, I, I expected that the team name would change as well, but they've kept the same name and I, I'm a big fan of keeping it. And and when you talk to Clippers um, supporters, for the most part, I mean, I'm not a spokesperson for them, but for the most part, they're very, very uh, adamant that they want to keep the team name because they, they've been through all of that stuff and they've been through, you know, the being the laughing stock and and people, you know, poking fun at them and they want to be able to to have that same team name 
when they can turn the tables and finally claim a championship. Um, but it's interesting, Tim, like with the with the book, one of the things that I got a lot of criticism for was the title of the book. A lot of Clippers fans really disliked the title of the book. And, and you know, I, was, I, I wasn't calling it the curse um, to be disrespectful or to be sort of poking fun at the Clippers. I, I called it that because I felt like that was the – the, the best sort of title to encapsulate that the experience of the last sort of, you know, four decades of what it would be like uh, being involved with the Clippers and involved on the level of being a fan of the Clippers. Like what, like just that, that perpetual um, having your hopes lifted and then something else going wrong. And then, you know, having your hopes lifted again and something else going wrong. And there's just that feeling of th- th- this level of misfortune can't be, um, can't just be down to bad luck. There's something else at play here. Well, if you grew up in Chicago, that's that's called the Chicago Cubs, at least until a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, so, exactly. There, there yeah. are, and the Boston Red Sox for some time. I mean, there's definitely parallels in in other sports, but um, and this will be the last question, and I'll let you promote uh, more directly. But I, in terms of a title for this book, I I think it's quite apt. Now that said, I'm I'm not a lifelong Clippers fan. And I just think there's more, you know, more basketball fans out there than there are Clippers fans. And arguably, you need to sell books and and get the story out there. So, but but it, you can't deny there's just been, you know, call it a curse or call it, you know, just a forty years of bad luck or or just unfortunateness. But you know, but to your point, maybe there is some there's something to be had there, regardless of of most a lot of it being negative or or at least sideways. It's still history, right? It's still. It's still a legacy. It's still something that's just not, you know, manufactured like a brand new team is and and all that kind of stuff. So I guess there's some level of um, admiration, I guess, I would throw towards Clippers fans way, including yourself. But let me ask you this question as we sort of uh, round out here. Why? Why? Why continue to to root for this team? What, What is it in the Clippers fan base and from wherever it started? Can you can you maybe describe sort of the, I guess the level of hope and or anticipation that things will improve and will get better? Is it misplaced or, or is it naive to think that that is going to get better or or is it just I I'm having a hard time trying to figure out why people would would hang on for so long when they've been so disappointed for so many seasons. Yeah, yeah, I, and there's lots of people I've come in contact with who who've turned their back on the team and then come back to them because they just feel so downtrodden by the experience of being a Clippers fan. But I think in some ways also that that makes them, uh, you know, like if you're a fan of the um, San Antonio Spurs and you win another championship, it's like, yep, but you've had that experience. You've had it multiple times, you know? Um, And, and this is a fan base of people, especially, I mean, there's lots of Clipper fans who've been Clipper fans since 2012, you know, like they, they, they came on board when Blake Griffin was drafted. Yeah. And that, and that's fine. I don't have any issue with that, but I'm talking about the people who've been fans since, since the Darius Miles days or fans since the Danny Manning days or fans since the Norm Nixon days. Like, and there are people that have had season tickets there since they first moved to Los Angeles in 1984 and they still have season tickets and they still go to the games now. Like for those people, there's something uh, really special about this pursuit of this first championship. Um, that's, 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 that's gotta be more gratifying than, you know, if, 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 uh, if, if a, a successful franchise wins again this year, because, 
because that for these fans they've never experienced that and and they've also been through such a, uh, such a hard road and been through so many negative experiences to get there that makes it has to make it more meaningful. Yeah, it's easy to root for for a winner, right? And uh, bandwagon and all that kind of stuff. But it, it takes a rare breed, right, to kind of you know truly root for a team through thick and thin, or, or mostly thick, uh, mostly thin, frankly. Sorry, uh, and it, it is saying something. It's a badge of honor, and I guess you know once that uh, that mountain is uh, fully climbed, let's say with a championship, God forbid, all the more reason to relish, right? Given all the you know, without uh, without pain and suffering, there probably isn't anything really to celebrate, right? So, all right, well, g- g- tell us about the uh, the book, where we can find it, and frankly, have you been approached by anybody, given it's uh, largely about a team in Los Angeles now, about maybe documentariness or other other ways of telling the story beyond the book? Funny you should say that. I was actually, actually right, right now, I'm meant to have the scheduled call with somebody about exactly that, but um, it's been delayed, so I'm going to ring them probably tomorrow, but, um, you got it. Yeah. an audience base that would love to see, you know, a documentary or some way, shape or form. Right. I mean, there's plenty of, plenty of stuff in there that, uh, you know, I think would be, uh, frankly, a, a revelation from, to a lot of fans that, uh, don't know any better and think that, uh, the, the franchise started with, uh, you know, Blake Griffith or, 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 or Steve Ballmer for that matter. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, beyond beyond my involvement in the project, I just think it's a really great story. Um, and I think it's kind of the story that it sounds cliche, but it's like, you know, kind of told itself that there was just so many, that one thing led to the next, led to the next, that there's just so many great um, stories in the book that if you like, if you're a fan of sort of professional sports and you like, you know, one of, the, one of my motivations for writing the book was that, you know, I, I'm a, I'm myself a big consumer of sports books and really interested to hear about stories of teams and players and stuff. But, you know, there's a, there's certain teams that you've heard heard the story of a million times over, you know, like the Boston Celtics. You know, we've, we all know the history of that franchise and we all know all the sort of important moments and whatever because they've been made into documentaries and there's 27 different books on it. Um, and, and my thought is that there, there, there's all these other great franchises that have all these amazing history that, that people don't know about or isn't as well publicised. So... I'm hopeful that something more will come from the book, but I don't know. We'll see what happens. As Ralph Lawler would say, oh me, oh my. There's no question that uh, this franchise is, uh, it's an unbelievable set of twists and turns, and I'm sure more to come as the whole drama around uh, whatever arena situation looks like, we, it looks like it's going to be in Englewood if Steve Ballmer and his uh, management team uh, have their way. Although lots of uh, interesting intrigue and, and legal battles ahead for sure on that front. But in the interim, the uh, best way to sort of uh, set yourself up for uh, the next few chapters, if you will, of this drama known as the L.A. Clippers uh, is to get this book. It's, uh, it's, it's a great read. And Mick has uh, painstakingly put uh, together uh, great interviews and great stats and all that kind of stuff. Uh, It's called The Curse, The Colorful and Chaotic History of the L.A. Clippers. Uh, And uh, we highly recommend it uh, to, uh, hey, if you're a Clippers fan, but uh, just just a basketball fan generally and just just outright curious about uh, just the the, the unbelievable bad luck and uh, uh, terrible management decisions and and, uh, just uh, just. 
unbelievable stuff that's gone on with this franchise. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great story and probably more to come. And uh, we encourage you to find uh, a copy of the book uh, wherever you find good books. Uh, of course, you can find a link to the book on our website, of course, at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode with Mick Minas. Click through to the Amazon link and uh, give us a few shekels of love, why don't you? By buying the book that way. We'd appreciate it. I'm sure Mick would, too. Uh, if you want to follow uh, Mick on Twitter, make sure you follow the right one. This is not the uh, wacky reality show guy out of Cyprus. No, no, no. This is uh, Mick Minas out in uh, Melbourne, Australia. Uh, and his Twitter is mminas8. That's M-M-I-N-A-S-8, the number eight, uh, on Twitter. Uh, and, of course, you can follow uh, not only him there, but also uh, uh, you can also find out more about him uh, by buying the damn book, for God's sakes, why don't you? And uh, you can find out more about us, for God's sakes, why don't you, on our website. As I said, goodseatstillavailable.com. You will find all of our social media links there, like on Twitter. We're at goodseatstill. You'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. You will find us on Facebook. Uh, on the website, you will find a convenient link to our email newsletter if you want to get that each week and sort of know what's going on with the show a few days ahead of uh, the average Joe on the street. And let's see, you can also send us email if you'd like, either from the website or directly, for God's sakes. Go ahead. And that's hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, we, of course, also want to thank our pal Jerry Payne, and uh, his friends at Podfly Productions, they help us production-wise, editorially. Uh, they do all the good stuff that makes this show sound halfway decent. We couldn't do it without them. And uh, you can find out more about Podfly at podfly.net. And gosh, I think that's it for this week. We uh, appreciate it. And uh, as we leave you now, I guess we'll keep our fingers crossed. On behalf of all the current Clippers fans and Mick Minas in particular, uh, let's see if the team stays in L.A. It's a, it's a pretty interesting place to be and to live and to grow and do business and uh and just enjoy life and uh we leave you now with of course the inimitable randy newman as uh he and maybe the clippers uh revel in loving la take care ain't new york city it's cold and it's down and all the people dressed like Let's leave Chicago to the Eskimo. That town's a little bit too rugged for you and me, you bad girl.
Oh! 